0: The Song of Mary, this is the prophecy. This is, this is, one of the, this is the first prophecy that has ever actually spoken over Jesus himself. It's the first thing that takes place when the angel comes and begins to share the plans of God. This is the response. And, and uh, this song starts out with this line that says, And the Spirit of God came upon her. And it's, it means that everything that she was about to say was inspired by God. These are things that God was putting into her heart and her mind to define what this child inside of her was going to do. Now, at Advent, the word Advent means arrival, the, the, uh, the appearance, right? And so in the song, that I think one of the first songs we sang today, we're talking about the Advent of Emmanuel, the arrival of God with us. So Advent, what we do is this. We take the story of Israel, and we begin to, to kind of put ourselves in their shoes. We begin to kind of to figure out what it felt like to be... Israel to be waiting, what it felt like to be married, to be waiting, to have these promises from God, but then to have those months of the in-between. Last week, I had the flu, and Pastor Larry, well, actually, I called Pastor Larry about 1.30 in the morning. On Sunday, I said, hey, I'm sorry. I don't think I'm going to make it. You're up. <laughs> this is why we pay you the big bucks. You got this, all right? <laughs> and uh <laughs> He, you know, of course, I think he was already up doing something. Who knows what it was. But he told me that the, the one thing that was on his heart was the in-between, right? And I think you even talked about pregnancy, didn't you? And about how there is this this tension of you know what's coming, but it's not here yet. And that in-between can be enjoyable, but, but really for most ladies, you would say, not so enjoyable. Fair? Okay, yeah, wake up a little bit, right? Like Okay, like, did you enjoy swelling and... Sweating and all the other things I won't talk about that happen, right? Correct? You know, the things that used to fit that don't fit anymore. You uh, used to be able just to get in bed and fall asleep, but now you got to find the right position. Correct? And then men, it's fun for us as well. Right? We get to uh, We get to cater. To all the needs of the person who's waiting, right? And so what happens at the end of pregnancy is, at first it's them waiting, and they just can't wait to hold the baby, but then everyone is ready for the baby to come, correct? Because when one person is suffering, we have this ability, we, when we suffer, we like to share the suffering, Correct? (laughs) Okay, when you are not doing well, you just love to bring other people into it. So it starts with one person who's waiting, who is uncomfortable, who is in tension, who who needs it to happen. Okay, who needs relief. But it begins to spread to the rest of us. Now this is kind of the story of Israel. There is a tension in the story. There is a waiting. There is a, a promise from God. And then there is time. And in that time, there is suffering, and there is pain, and there is a lack of evidence that what was promised is actually going to come. So at Advent, what we do is we kind of get ourselves in their shoes a little bit. This is what it felt like to wait the way that they waited. And the reason we do that is because we are also waiting. I'm not sure if you realize that, but we ourselves are waiting the same way that they waited. As Christians, we talk about Jesus law as if everything he was going to do and promise has already happened. But there's a tension in Christianity. It's called called the not yet. Meaning, we know that He has forgiven us. We know He saved us. We know that He has redeemed all things. He has changed all things. He has come to make all things new again. But yet, we live in the what? In the in-between. Because things are not changed. Things are not all right. Things are wrong. Things are broken. And so, we find ourselves with a story that we should be able to relate to more than any other. We should be able to relate to the waiting of Israel as they waited on the Messiah, because we are still waiting on that same Messiah. So we have, we have four Sundays of Advent, and it is four Sundays of trying to, to remind ourselves that what we are supposed to be hoping for as Christians hasn't come yet. Because when you remind yourself of your hope, you're, you're stirring expectation, you're stirring hunger for something. You know, it's one thing to go into McDonald's and then to be hungry to get a meal and to eat it. It's another thing to go to a nice restaurant and you have been so hungry. You've been waiting for this. You've been thinking about this. You had the reservation made weeks in advance. And when you sit there and they bring each course, your hunger just begins to stir. And this is what we do in Advent. We stir our hunger because there's something that happens. When you wait for something for so long and it doesn't show up, you stop waiting. You stop expecting. You stop hungering for what you hungered for. So this is the third week, the third Sunday. Let's make sure I don't mess this up, of Advent. So next Sunday will be the fourth. And then at the midnight candlelight, when it turns midnight, after we've done all of our stuff and it's, it's almost time to go home, the last thing we'll do at midnight, when it becomes Christmas, we will light that white candle, that candle of Christ, the candle of hope. And the reason that we use candles is because to use a candle means that we are acknowledging that there is darkness in the world. When you use a candle, you're you're using it because it offers you something. It offers light. It offers hope. And you don't need light if there's not darkness. You don't need hope if everything is made right. If you have everything you need, what do you need to hope for? I'm asking you. If you have everything you need, what do you need to hope for? The answer is what? Nothing. Nothing. If you have everything you need, you have nothing to hope for. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit because, you know, if we're waiting with Israel and we will begin to read the story of Israel, here's a people who have had nothing but suffering in their history. They have gone from being oppressed and conquered and oppressed and conquered, oppressed and conquered. They've been been taken away from the homes. They've been separated from families. These people have a reason to hope because they have nothing. And so what we have here is a people who are so hungry but yet there's something that happened. When when the Messiah who they've been waiting for for thousands of years actually shows up, does everyone see him? Does all of Israel discern? Do they all see, this is what we've been waiting for? When they're all gathered chanting, kill him, are they actually realizing that what they've been waiting for, they're about to kill? What's the answer? No. No. And so if we're waiting with Israel, we also need to ask ourselves a question. How do we make sure that we don't miss who and what we're waiting for the same way that they did? If they had even more reason to hope, even more reason to wait, even more reason to long to see God, but yet when he walked right in front of them, they missed him, is it possible we can do the same thing? And so for us, it comes down to this. It comes down to expectations. Now, when you hope for something, what do you do? Like, like mentally, you begin to form a what? You form a, a mental image, picture, right? When you hope for something, you begin to build an image, a vision, right, to hope for. You need a picture. You need something to kind of work at. When you're in college, I mean, there's times college is terrible, right? But you're just, you have this image, this picture of what could be on the other side, when you're working this terrible job, but you know, if I just work this job, I can get to this job. And so you begin to, to visualize what you could get to if you just put up with that suffering. You begin to create an image, right? When, I'm not sure I'm qualified to talk about this. But when you are in labor, there is a vision of holding that baby. I'm assuming. I have no idea. Okay, when you, when you are going through excruciating pain, all right, there is an image, there is a vision of a baby. And that is why you press through correct? There's a vision. There's an expectation. But here's the issue. What happens if our expectation, if our vision, if it doesn't match what's coming? What if our vision and expectation of who Jesus is and what He's going to do doesn't match who He really is, what He's really going to do? I know often whenever I used to read the Gospels, I used to be like, how do these people like miss it? Like, he's doing signs and wonders. He's extremely wise. He reteaches the scriptures. I mean, come on. I mean, like, I mean, if I were there, I would know it was Jesus, correct? Have you guys ever? I, I mean, I wouldn't be in the crowd saying, kill him. You know, I, I, that wouldn't have been me. I mean, I, I, not me, no. I would have known that was the Messiah. It's Jesus. Come on. But how did they miss it? And see, I, I, I didn't understand it because I didn't understand the context. I, mean, I didn't understand what they expected. I didn't understand that they had a different vision than what Jesus really was. The way that they pictured Jesus wasn't exactly what Jesus was. What they pictured him doing wasn't what he was coming to do. Um, when you guys were younger, did you guys picture your future spouse? Come on, be honest. Did you have a picture? Like, he's going to look like this, or she going to look like this. She's going to be this. I mean, she can cook real good right? Like, oh, oh he's going to be so rich, have the best hair. I mean, I mean, come on, right? I mean, yes, you had an image, correct? Now, I'm not going to ask you if what you ended up with matches your expectations, <laughs> but you get the point, right? Like, okay, we'll leave that there. Now, uh, here's some context. I want you to understand why they missed Jesus, what happened here. Understand that for Israel, God had promised them land. He had promised them a place, right? He called it the promised land, right? He had promised them land. He had promised them independence, meaning he had promised them freedom, the ability to choose to do with your life what you want to do, to not be controlled by other people and other powers. He had promised them prosperity and wealth. He had promised them all these things, and this is what they're expecting. Now, all that they've actually had is the opposite. They haven't had their land by the (laughs) Other people live in their land, and they've been moved out of their homes. Not only that, they haven't been blessed with prosperity. Everything they have has been stolen from them. And now for generations, you, your children, your children's children, your parents, your grandparents, all you've ever done is work for other people to get rich. Have you ever experienced that? Okay. These are the things they have experienced, and they haven't experienced freedom. They were promised freedom, but all they've tasted... Is slavery. Being controlled, being told what to do with their time, with their money, being told when to wake up, when to go to sleep, what they can do, what they cannot do. Now, what has just happened, what has just happened in the, in the last 50 years for Israel, they had a revolt. They decided, the, the Greeks decided that it was important to take away the temple. And so they took away temple worship and they made the Jews eat pork. Think about this. Now, for us, we're like, ooh, I like pork. That's, that's, not, you know, that's not a huge deal. But for a Jew, what it meant was they were going to take away their hope. Because for a Jew, we are to, to tell God we are waiting, to tell God we still trust him, there are things we do to show him that. And so what we eat and what we, what we don't eat, the things we touch, things we don't touch, the, the, the days we work, the days we don't work, these are ways we tell God we're waiting. But they're going to take that away from us. So what has just happened... The Maccabean Revolt. Have you guys ever heard of that before? Hanukkah, okay, it's a celebration of the time when they took back their city. They took back their temple, and they took back their freedom with force. Now, of course, this was short-lived, but this was a taste of of freedom. This was a taste of what they had been expecting. for. Have, have you guys ever had that dream and you got so close to what you've been hoping for? You just got a little bit of a taste of it and then it was taken away from you? Come on, anybody? Okay, we're all very honest today. I love it. You know, we just have so much energy. <sighs> What's worse than hoping for something is actually having a grip on it and then having it slip through your fingers. That's even worse than hoping. Because you've gotten so close and then it's pulled away from you. This is where Israel is. And so this is the time when Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he comes and everyone is expecting. They are so hungry and ready. They are so ready to have freedom. We are so ready to win a stinking football game, right? I mean, like that guy, I mean, the only thing that Coach Morris has done is like tweet a bunch, right? And the fans are going nuts. This is the Messiah. We're going to beat Bama. I mean, he tweets so well. He's on the plane all the time. We're going to do it. So much hope in in the nation of Arkansas. (laughs) a Razorback nation. You better get it right. There's so much expectation. Here comes Jesus, and yet he doesn't fit the bill. Because, see, everything they're expecting, land, if you're going to have land, you got to take land back, correct? Because if someone else has what's yours, the only way you're going to get it is if you take it. So here comes Jesus, and everything he does is not lining up. Well, see, we were told the Messiah was going to come through this gate, not that gate. And when he came through this gate, he was going to come with an army. But he comes through this gate on, a, on this little donkey with a bunch of peasants and women. That's not going to win a lot of wars, correct? Well, he was, he was supposed to make us rich. But now I see him stripped naked on a cross. He has nothing to his name. How can this man make me rich? He was supposed to free us from Rome. He was supposed to to fill the streets with blood so that we could have freedom from the Romans. But whose blood is now rolling through the streets? Who is dragged across through the streets? Who is bleeding out on the cross? It's not the Romans. It's our Messiah. And they say that's no Messiah of ours. This does not meet our expectations. Now, this is the point I need you to, to get this morning. You can miss what you're waiting for if your expectations are off. You will miss what God is doing in your life, what God is doing in the world, if you have the wrong expectations of what he's going to do. You will miss Jesus in your life, at work in your life, if you do not know what Jesus looks like, if you do not know what Jesus cares about, if you do not know what Jesus is coming to do, you will miss it. And most of the evangelical church in this country is missing the work of Jesus right now because they misunderstand who he is and what he's coming to do. And the challenge for us is this, are we going to miss him too? When you begin to read the parables of Jesus, the question is always, it's not just who gets to come to the party, who chooses to say yes to Jesus. It's who discerns, who sees what he's doing, who actually sees that this is him and not someone else. Of all the virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to show up, who is it who's waiting patiently? Who is it who is prepared? Who is it who is keen and prepared to see what God is doing. This is the issue for us today. We're going to miss God completely. Now, here's some more context for you. This culture was still very patriarchal, meaning men on top, the women on bottom, correct? Now, there's something really weird about the Gospel of Luke. He likes to focus on women. Women. Now, that seems really ordinary to us, but there's something unordinary about it in this culture, right? Because the women are are the ones who are the kings and the rulers and the priests and the prophets, correct? No. See, women were still referred to as things, as property. Have you guys ever, in the Scriptures, there's the word seed, right? And the man offers seed, correct? Have you heard this reference? Now, the man offers seed because what, what is the woman? The land that's going to yield a harvest. And you wonder why they would come and... For the man to get his land, he would have to buy her from the Father. Are you seeing this? This is still the context of the story. And so in the Gospel of Luke, we start with two women. With Mary, with the cousin Elizabeth. And these are the two women who God starts His redemptive work on the earth with. Thousands of years prophets, priests, and kings. But who does God choose to redeem the world through, to start the work of God on the earth? Two women. And then after this goes on, as Jesus is out here, he's working, he's doing his ministry. Who is it who is is funding this ministry? Who is it who discerns and sees what God is doing? Who is it who makes sure that this work of God comes to pass? Who is it who funds the ministry of Jesus? Guess. Women. Who are the ones who are first noted by Luke as the ones who were, who were there at the cross when Jesus died? The same women, actually. And who are the first ones to see Jesus resurrected? Oh, men, of course, right? Priests and prophets. Women. Women. Are you seeing a consistency here? Now, it's not the time matters. The reason women matter is because of the way women were treated at this time. There's something that God is showing us, something afoot here. Understand that when Jesus talks about kingdom, what he does is this. When he says a parable, he's painting a picture for you. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, he is painting a picture. And the reason he's painting you a picture is for this. He's trying to paint the picture of what you are to hope for, what you are to expect. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come. This is not just some kind of like abstract thing. We are picturing that w- what, what would the world look like if Jesus was in control. And this is the image, the hope that we work towards, that we endure for, that we suffer for because we want that picture to come here. Having fun yet? Now, if we're waiting, we're talking about missing, let's talk about who missed God. Who is it who didn't see what God was doing? Who was it who had Jesus walk right in front of his face and they missed it? Who missed God? Here's the first group. The Pharisees, have you guys ever heard that term? Which, by the way, those are not bad guys in stories, okay? The more we read, you'll realize they're they're actually the closest thing to good guys in the story of the people who missed it. The Pharisees believed that it was through holiness, meaning that they would devote themselves to prayer and to consecrating their entire lives the way they thought ate, lived, to waiting for the Messiah. Their entire existence was to wait to see the Messiah appear. And they thought the way the Messiah is going to come is through holiness. If we would just be spiritual enough, God would come. Have you ever been to a church where we talk like that? If we would just get on our knees and we just fast more, if we would just get holy, then what's going to happen? God would come. Okay, nod a little bit. Have you ever been to a church like this? If we get holier, God will show up. If he doesn't show, it's because we're what? Not holy enough. Correct? You've heard this before. Here's the second group, the Sadducees. Now, they gave up on all that mystical garbage. What good is prayer really going to do? That's not really the hope. What good is fasting going to do? We have to be practical. Sure, we can pray, but we have to really, what moves things in this world? Force and money and influence. People, that's called politics. Politics so the Sadducees devoted themselves to gaining political power. They found ways to get into the, the, the Jewish systems of government. They found a way to weasel their ways in with the Romans to gain favor to where they would have authority over people to make things happen. And they believed the Messiah was going to change the world through power and through money. And they were going to be there when the Messiah came to do it. They missed God, have you been to a church who talks a lot about those things? We'll skip. It's not this church. Here's the next group, the Essenes. They believed that the only way to see Jesus, the only way to see the Messiah, was to, to pull away from all distractions. We had to get away from everything that's not, that's not what God is doing and consecrate ourselves. So they had these communities that were on the outskirts of town. They missed God. And then we had the Zealots. The zealots said, What good is all of that? We know there's only one thing that gets things done the Second Amendment. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I I, I couldn't help it. I I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just messing. There's only one way to get things done. We got to do it the way that the Maccabeans did it. We have to do it the way that worked. Whenever they went through the entire city and killed every single Greek, when they went through every Jewish male and they circumcised them by force, that's the only way to do it. Force. I want you to understand something. If your expectations of the Messiah look anything like these, you are missing God, and you will miss Jesus in your life. This is not how the Messiah of all of creation is going to redeem anything. He will not use these ways. He did not use it then, and he will not do it now. You will miss God because your expectations are off, because you fail to discern Christ in the Scriptures. Now, who did see Jesus? In all of this craziness, all of these these different groups who are vying for power, all these different people trying to fix things, who didn't miss it? Who saw what God was doing? Here's the first group, the poor. The poor. If you notice in the Scriptures, the first group who's always responding to Christ are those who have nothing, the ones who don't have jobs, the ones who are flocking to hear these sermons, the ones who have nothing else in their lives, and they just walk away from whatever little things they had to follow him, the poor. Understand that Mary was part of the Anawim, referred to as the holy poor, meaning Mary was broke. Mary was one of the people who in Arkansas, when you drive past that house and it's not really a house, it's a shack, and it's got, all so, it's got more things on the front lawn than what's in the house, that's Mary. She has nothing. The poor are the first ones in the Gospels to discern Christ. The shepherds are the first ones we see of all of Israel who are able to discern what God is doing in Christ. They're the first ones who get message of what God is doing. The powerless Understand that sickness in the Scriptures, illness, blindness, being a leper, these are signs of powerlessness. They believed that it was because these people were sinners that they had these types of illnesses. Have you ever heard that before? If you had more faith, if you wouldn't have been such a sinner, you wouldn't be sick? Yeah, we still think the same stupid things, don't we? And yet, these are the ones who discern God. These are the people who are pressing through crowds and crawling. These are the ones who are hollering. These are the ones who are climbing trees. These are the ones who are trying to see God the powerless. The ones who can't make anything happen on their own, those are the ones who are going to discern God moving. Those who have nothing to lose, those are the ones who are going to first discern God moving. And then the next ones we see are the sinners and the unclean. Who is Jesus always criticized for spending his time with? Why does your master always eat with? All of the really spiritual and the politically powerful and the rich. Why is Jesus always eating with them, right? No, that's that's accepted. That's expected in the Messiah. Because if you're going to have a kingdom, if you're going to get things done, you need what? The powerful on your side, correct? But no, who's Jesus eating with? He's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the outsiders, the ones no one wants to get dirty with. No one wants them even around. Those are the places, those are the ones who are the first to discern what God is doing in the world. And then, of course, we see the Gentiles. Now, if you guys have your Bibles, go to uh, Isaiah 61, verse 1. I tend to get pushed back on sermons like this. Yeah, 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 I hear all of you. But no, I mean, like, that's not really what God's doing. See, like, He's just here for salvations. He just wants everyone to not go to hell, Devin. That's what the Scriptures are about. Okay, I understand what you think you're saying. So if reading the Gospels is not enough, in the spirit of Advent, since we want to focus on pre-Christ, let's read the, the prophecy, the messianic prophecy, the description from God of what the Messiah was going to do on the earth. This is the, the, the same prophecy that Jesus began his earthly ministry with. This is how Jesus self-described what he's going to do on the earth. Isaiah 61.1. The Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, meaning he's chosen me. He's chosen me. He has sent me to bring good news to the, the rich and the powerful, the politically elite. Oh, well, that's not what it says. <laughs> to, bring good, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captives. Who is this good news for? People on the bottom. In liberation, freedom for the captives, for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God. To comfort all who mourn. To provide for Zion's mourners. To get them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, and a mantle of praise in a place of discouragement. He has this line there about the Lord's favor. This, when it says the Lord's favor, it means this is who God looks to first. This is who is first in line when it says favor. This is who gets to cut to the front. And, of course, the line I teach a lot here at Grace, okay, that Jesus always likes to put a book in on everything he says. He says, and in the kingdom of God, the what shall be first? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And let me explain this to you, too. In the gospel stories, if you just go read the gospel, see who who gets it, who, who, who picks up on that Jesus is the Messiah. Who is it who gets it first? It's always the bottom, always the people in the bottom. So here is the tip of the day for you. Our question is this. Would you even recognize if Jesus walked in the room? Are you able to recognize where God is at work in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, around you? Are are you even able to perceive it? If you're not able to perceive it, here's a tip. Surround yourself with people who suffer. Surround yourself with people who have nothing. And you'll begin to see what they see. And you'll begin to be able to discern with them the things that God is at work doing. Because the problem for most of us is this. Every group who missed Jesus was the groups who were in power, the groups who had, the groups who were on top. They're always the ones to miss it. And for some of us, we don't realize that we're a part of those groups. So the question is, so what's that look like today? In this world right now, what are the common places of suffering that we see today? Anybody throw it out there. Throw it out there. What's, what are the groups in our society that are still on the bottom? The poor, still on the bottom. Anybody else? Uneducated, absolutely. Anyone else? Minorities, if you're not what color? Ooh, that one already starts to kind of. How about one more? Oh, immigrants, especially now, correct? Anybody else? Oh, yes. The elderly. Absolutely. Here's one more for you. Women. There are two places in this country where women and minorities, people who aren't white, suffer the most. The South and the what? The church. These are two places that women and minorities still suffer the worst. Do you know that the last Sunday that uh, Pastor Jay preached was the first Sunday that we didn't have someone walk out when she preached? I thought kind of settle in for you. Oh, but it's, no, no, we don't have that stuff anymore. Uh, you know, that, 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 that's a long time ago. I remember uh, I used to, to say this thing, and it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, With race, they should say, you guys can't complain about race anymore. You have a black president now. Have you said that? Come on, women, you can't complain. You guys got everything we got. Have you ever said that before? How many of you who said that were men? Oh, no hands this time. Okay. How many of the people who said that about racism were white? No. Oh, okay, okay, two hands, good. You will find something. You will find that you will be quick to shut down anyone suffering who isn't in your position. Just think. The moment that you have a similarity, for example, if you served in the armed forces, who here has served in the armed forces? When you hear about veterans and how they are treated poorly, are you able to connect to them? Yes, because you share this, you have a bond. But think about yourself. When you hear about other forms of suffering, are you that quick to connect to them? Or are you quick to shut it down? Here's why. We are threatened by suffering. If we listen, think, connect, care, it could change things. It could mess with things. It could inconvenience me. Here's the worst thing. If I'm willing to really listen to someone suffering, it could cost me something. uh, I remember with the first shooting in Ferguson, I remember when it happened, I was just so disconnected. I was like, gosh, racism? I, I mean, I think it matters. I, I just can't really connect. And then I went and sat down. And how do I don't even say that? When I heard, I'll say this way How many of you were taught by your parents when you get pulled over? Be respectful, right? You be polite, you be respectful. Well, my nephews are black, and they were not taught to be polite, to be respectful. They were taught, you speak when spoken to, you look straight ahead, hold, Whew, man, it's, it's terrible. We, uh, we hate suffering because if I care, if what you're saying is true, if you truly are suffering, then I might be a part of it and it might affect me. I might have to change something. If people who are not white suffer, and that's a real thing, then that means that I either have to choose to ignore it or to care about it, to change something in me to help. If immigrants suffer, that means I have to make more space to care. If If females suffer, that means I have to begin to evaluate every relationship I've ever had. I have to evaluate my marriage. (laughs) What if I find that in me? So, it's a warning for us this morning. If you are someone who shuts down the stories of suffering around you, if you hear someone who shares about they've been abused, they've been mistreated, they've been, they've been raped, they've been mistreated in the workplace, and they've been you know, mistreated by police officers, they've been whatever it is, if you are someone who shuts it down, you are missing God. It is not our place as Christians to sit as judges, to sit as, well, you know, what's it going to fix anything if I care? Your job as a Christian is to be a witness. You are called, this term in the Scriptures, or you are a witness, as many of you have a responsibility from Christ to stand in a place where there's injustice and to say, this is wrong. Now, As an American, as an individual, you might have every right in the world to have your opinion, but guess what? You can't claim to be a Christian. Drop that title, and you can have whatever opinion you want. Say whatever you want on Facebook, on Twitter, at work. I don't care, but if you dare carry the title of Christian, you will be with the people he is with. You will listen. You will care. And you will wait with them. <laughs> See, now to be a Christian is not about salvation. To be a Christian is about allegiance, it is about choosing to take the example of Christ. It is choosing to say, you go this way, Jesus goes this way, the world goes that way, I will either go this way. Or that way. If I go with Jesus, he will save me. If I go with the world, I have no promises, no guarantees. The only assurance as Christians we have is when we are imitating and following to the best of our ability. When we are following, we are picking up our cross, denying ourselves daily. This is the assurance of a Christian. I am following in the footsteps of Jesus to the best of my ability. It feels like death. Parts of me die every single day and it hurts. This is how I know I'm a Christian. Choose. And the first clue for you, you are missing Jesus if you are the first person to shut down stories of suffering. You are the first person to miss it. If you want to see and connect to what God is doing in your world, if you want the right expectations of who Jesus is and what he's going to do, you will get with the people at the bottom of your society, of your workplace, of your family structure, of your neighborhood, of this church, and you will make sure that you are connecting, you are listening, and you are with them. Because when you wait with them, you will not miss God.